Join me in Exodus chapter 25. We'll begin there and look at just a few other passages in Exodus and in the New Testament. As we unfold the next chapter of our Growing Grace campaign, which ultimately is a call to commitment, we began in Luke 14. Anyone has a desire to build a tower, let him first count the cost. And that illustration served Jesus' call to discipleship. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. So growing grace, as we've entitled it for these months of October and November, is really trying to unfold this vision for a greater stewardship of people that make the church, and of the properties that God has given us here at this local church. First, we looked at the commitment to join the church. And so, again, I invite you to come to one of these membership classes, even this week, and express that commitment. Last week, we considered the commitment to pray for the church. And we've tried to prime the pump with that 30 days of prayer card to show you how simple that would really be to pray daily for the church. A simple prayer based on the Word of God on behalf of God's people. Today we are studying the commitment to give to the church. So if you're visiting with us, Hopefully you're not thinking of all the Sundays to show up and they're going to ask us for money. We don't even know these people. Well, no, we're just going to study God's word uh, and we'll all be challenged as we've already rehearsed uh, to be cheerful givers, all right? Um, You don't need to give anything to this local body. You may have a church home and ministries you're supporting. Uh, God always seems to be faithful to arrange for our needs to be met. So, uh, especially for you guests, uh, do not hear this as a call to linger at the little offering box in the back as you empty your pockets, all right? Uh, That's God's prerogative to tell you where to put those dollars. But we need today to wrestle with God's prerogative uh, to tell us what to do with our dollars. Uh, We all know that God can provide in any way he chooses, And in our lives, and in the lives of those in the biblical record, we often see God provide in ways that we would call even miraculous. The very least, totally surprising. You were not prepared for the way God was going to meet your need. So then we ask the question, if God can so easily do that, as we've seen him do, then why would he ask us to give all the more as this local congregation to expand parking or to renovate a building? Why did God ask his church in the New Testament, those that were in Greece or over in Asia Minor, to bring their money in order to send that to the church at Jerusalem to meet their needs? Why can't God do one of those Miracle things. If he could feed the 5,000, why can't he feed the hungry saints at Jerusalem? Why, why does he need his church over here to take care of the church over there? 
Or why does he need his people in a local congregation sitting over here to help the needs of somebody over here? The answer is found in describing the New Testament freedom of giving from the heart. The privilege of giving. The worship of giving. The voluntary giving. God wants us to experience the blessing of being an abundant, cheerful giver. He's completely capable of meeting every need by arranging his world in any way he wants to meet that need. And yet more often than not, it seems to be his pattern of simply using his people to meet his people's need. Now we know that's all his work in us, but it's us. He's using us to meet that need because he has something for us, not only in the receiving, but in the giving. Giving, in the scriptures, is ultimately defined as surrendering something from the heart. Oh, it may have been an animal for the sacrifice or the tithe of the olives in the Old Testament. It may be some portion of your paycheck that you give to the church or send to a radio ministry that has been a help to you or you you help somebody that's in need in your neighborhood. But that, that giving from the heart is what the Bible is after in Old and New Testaments. If you were with us in the equip hour, we studied this language of tithing. We see it there in the Old Testament as kind of, I used this expression already, the priming of the pump. It was beginning to demonstrate to God's people, here's what generosity would look like. It's a, it's a pretty fair portion of what you have, a tenth. In the New Testament, we don't feel compelled by the law that was given to Moses in the Old Covenant. But we certainly feel compelled by the multiple admonitions or the law that we find in the New Testament, the law of Christ and the law of liberty and the law of love that would show us that when I have this world's goods and see my brother in need, because the love of God is in me, I give. So when you give in the offering and you know some of that money is going to the farmer family in Cambodia or to the Schroeder family in Alaska, or to the Webbers as they're in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but Ron will be in Ghana, Africa for the month of November, getting these translations into the language of the people there. You realize that ultimately there's a need and you're giving something so that that need will be met. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I must commit financially to the Lord's work. I don't think that's very inflammatory or even provocative. It's just, I think that's something most Christians would agree to. In some way, I should be giving financially to the Lord's work. That has no amount on it because obviously, even if we're talking proportional giving, you may only have mere dollars and someone else may have thousands to give. But as the story of that widow dropping her few pennies into the box illustrates in the New Testament, God's not concerned with the amount because he doesn't need your money. He's concerned with the heart behind 
that giving. So again, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you must commit financially to the Lord's work. Having said we're not bound by the Old Testament, I want to look there this morning for our study of giving. Because we would say this, the Old Testament informs our giving in the New Testament. While we're going to rely on the New Testament to define what kind of giving should the church be about, the Old Testament is still there to show us that there's truth here, there's help here. So we're going to be informed by the Old Testament as we live in the New, being called to be, as we've heard several times now, generous and cheerful givers. Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make. So this is Moses and God alone up on the mountain. God's laying out all these guidelines, all these blueprints and plans. Now turn forward 10 chapters to Exodus 35. What we have now is Moses has come down from the mountain and he's recounting all that God told him to the people. So you rightly expect and you will hear some similar thoughts. Exodus 35 verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Again, same announcement made, what Moses heard from God, he passes on to the people. Whoever has a willing heart, bring your contribution to the Lord. From these accounts of Moses as a mouthpiece from God, rounding up the offerings, right? Passing the plate. From this account, I want us to see five principles of committed giving, all right? We're aiming at commitment. That's a heart expression. I'm in. Maybe that looks like becoming a member. Maybe that looks like, man, I got to pray for this church. I don't do that enough. I need to pray for these people. Uh, Maybe it looks like I I need to better understand financial giving. Well, committed giving. A heart that's committed results in giving, That's what we're trying to understand from our text. Principle number one, let's call the principle of gratitude. Giving from the heart is the privilege of God's redeemed people. 
Where do we get this idea of God's redeemed people? We're privileged, we're, we're grateful. In Exodus 25, which we read, God tells Moses to secure these contributions, and that word shows up often. And we see all the the valuable items that are listed. And then God says this, expressing the purpose of all those gifts, all that expensive stuff. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This had never happened before, mind you. God was going to, to borrow New Testament language, humble himself to dwell among his people. Now, he had done this once before, at least a pattern that unfolds in Genesis, when it tells us that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Somehow, God's presence was with them. That's as much as we know, but it was the expected norm. But then, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned against God by saying no to his rule, his benevolent rule, mind you, and decided they were better served by taking care of their own interests. So they selfishly decide we will rule over ourselves and sin plunges the human race into ruin and its ultimate end, death. So Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. The angel is posted at that garden entrance to remind them, you, you don't just walk back into fellowship with God. That's been, that's been severed. Our sweet communion with him of knowing his presence has been fractured by our own choice, our sin. So this is, this is intriguing in a theological sense, and very personally then, because we're dealing with somehow God is bridging this gap that our sin created. We were once walking with God, our sin separates us from God, and there's this big gap in the middle. And now we're reading, wait a minute, God is going to come and dwell in our midst? How is that possible? He's holy and we're sinners. So the language is important. He says, make for me a sanctuary, a place that is set apart, or we would say holy. So we're learning, okay, wait a minute. Somehow God is going to dwell with us, but it's going to be in perfect holiness. And yet what's going to unfold in this tabernacle is all these sacrifices and, and all these steps for us to draw near to him because he has drawn near to us. So even in this passage about giving to build a nice church building, let's call it, a little bit anachronistically, what we're seeing are the, are the elements of the gospel. It's unfolding for us. We know because of Adam and Eve, we're sinners and God is holy, and that's a big problem because sin earns the wages of death, forever separated from God. And yet this text is telling us somehow God is going to manifest himself in his presence in perfect righteousness and make a provision for us as sinners to meet him there. So in the New Testament language, if if we take the presence of God as God the Son taking on human flesh and tenting 
tabernacling, dwelling among us, we see exactly what unfolded in Exodus 25 and Exodus 35. God dwelling in our midst in a sanctuary. Christ said, destroy this temple and I'll build it up in three days. He was the holy place where God met with his people in him. So he came as the sanctuary. He he bridged that gap of sin. He came and dwelt with us and made provision by sacrifice, not of bulls and goats, but of his own life so that we could draw near to him. And so John was right. We do love him because he first loved us. We do come to the sanctuary of Christ and meet God there by faith because he first came to us. This is the gospel, my friends, that what we could not do for ourselves, come back into fellowship with God, clean ourselves up from our sin. God says, I'll make a way. I will come to you. So when I could not come to where he was, he came to me, the old gospel song says. Well, in our account, when that purpose unfolds, that God will dwell with his people so that they won't be distant from him, if in that context, God is going to dwell with us and we will be his people, if he says, would you bring a contribution and give of some of your stuff to me so that we can have this place of worship, should not the, the response of God's people be quick and cheerful and voluntary and abundant Giving. Should we not say, sure, if it's for my rescuer, sure, I'll give. And so the New Testament presents giving not as a strict obedience to a law or to an amount, but as the ransomed, as the rescued, the redeemed, saying, God has chosen to dwell among us. If he wants a little bit of my time, my money, if he wants all of my time and all of my money, I'll give it. And I will give it gratefully because he has chosen to dwell among us. It is our privilege to give to the work of the church that God has promised to build. I know too often that gets conflated by give to this church so we can build bigger buildings and add more things. Not that bigger buildings and more things are bad, but oftentimes in our minds it just gets reduced to, oh, they want to do something else and they're asking us to give. Well, was there something they wanted to do in the text? Clearly, it's something God wanted to do. He wanted to build this tent of tabernacle. But that wasn't the focus. Come on, we need more because we want this to be really nice. It was, I want to dwell with you as my people. Will you give to that? And they did. Committed giving is rooted in the principle of gratitude. Principle number two, the principle of stewardship. In the discussion in the study hour before, many were wise to to build on this principle of stewardship. What is it? Giving from the heart is returning what God has entrusted to you. Giving from the heart. Remember, even in Exodus, those whose hearts moved them 
Giving from the heart is simply returning what God has entrusted to you. And I say entrusted because we should probably even be careful in saying our offerings are simply giving what God has given to us. Yes, he has given it. That's an action verb that is valid. But it's not like, okay, now it's mine. No, we've been entrusted with it. We're stewards of it. You see, stewardship of your finances begins with this truth. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to him. God was asking for a portion of their treasures, right? Gold, silver, bronze. You know, we'll receive any of that from you. We'll figure out a way to convert that. Bring your goat's hair. Well, I, you know, in humility, I will, I, will, I will let the other elders and their wives take that and just enjoy that as a blessing, right? Like the Levites got their portion of those gifts. They can have the goat's hair, some of those medals. Uh, never mind. My question is this. God was asking them to give gold, silver, bronze, the most expensive yarns and fabrics and materials, Aren't they just, like at Mount Sinai, aren't they only about a month or two removed from being slaves in Egypt? So how, how do slaves in Egypt come up with gold, silver, bronze, and all this expensive stuff? Do you remember the story? Exodus chapter 3 is where we first heard of God's plan. Verse 20. God says, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. That's the ten plagues he's referencing. And after that, he, speaking of Pharaoh, will let you go. And I will give this people, his people, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. They would have if God said to this people in slavery, pack up all your stuff. And they would have thought, we've got it. We're wearing it. Like, what do you mean? But you shall not go empty. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Imagine if your kids dress up clothes. If you don't know what that is, I've got a couple of bins for you because after five girls, we've had our fair share of dress-up clothes, right? They look like they could be expensive princess dresses and expensive pendants and jewelry. So now convert that all to real expensive fabric and real jewelry. And God's saying, I'm going to give you so much stuff, your, your kids are going to wear it like this, you know, new Israelite swag kind of look heading out of Egypt. You can't carry it all, so, okay, here, honey, you wear this, you know, expensive gold necklace that we got from the Egyptians. You're not going to go out empty, God says. Ask for their silver, their gold, and for their clothing. You shall plunder the Egyptians. Exodus 12 unfolds that Passover night. The tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh and the Egyptians have had enough and they demand that the Israelites go and they give them whatever they ask for. So Exodus 3 is fulfilled just a few chapters later in Exodus 12. The Egyptians were urgent 
with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we will all be dead. After that last plague, they thought, we will all be dead if we don't go along with this God's demands. Go! So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls before, or being bound up in the cloaks of their shoulders. They had already packed everything up. Their dough is unleavened, so that's where the Passover celebration comes from, and eating the unleavened bread. It was to remember both the haste and the bounty in which they departed. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Keep this story in mind. Whenever you're compelled to give or even feel pressure to give. And remember this, God has financed his church. God won't ask for anything that he hasn't already given you. Here, he's wanting to build a tabernacle, and he's asking the people to give. But when we look back, we realize they did not leave empty-handed. God gave them everything they needed and more, and was simply saying, out of that bounty with which I've prospered you, Surely you have something that you can give as an expression of gratitude and worship. When God brought his people back to the land after the Babylonian captivity, so we're jumping years later now in Israel's history, he planned for them to rebuild the temple, but they forgot this principle of stewardship. After being essentially slaves or the oppressed minority, at least, in Babylon, They get back to their homeland and they're eager to kind of be their own people again, to have their own house. It's like this newfound freedom. But they forgot that everything that they had belonged to God. And so they were using all their wealth for their own purposes. Well, Haggai the prophet shows up and he sets these people straight. And I'll get to Haggai here in a moment. You ever have to run through it in your mind? Haggai, in verse, one more. Chapter one has a message for God's people. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it? a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, speaking of God's house, lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, and here's the phrase you should remember from Haggai, consider your ways. Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And the one who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Careful reading of the text shows that having a nice house is not the problem. 
the paneled houses that were described. Sowing and having a harvest and enjoying that is not the problem. Drinking and being satisfied is not the problem. Saving your earnings and putting them into a bag is not the problem. The people were doing all of those things, but because their heart was self-focused, taking care of their needs, that just never quite felt like it was enough. It never satisfied. God was saying, prioritize. Seek first the kingdom of God. Tune your heart to kingdom purpose, including the kingdom purpose of your dollars. And if God is pleased with your dollars to be spent on a family vacation where you actually do get some rest and kind of renewal together as a family, then spend them there by God's design. But if your dollars are are best spent in writing a check and entrusting that to the, the leadership of the church and you drop that in the offering box and say, it's the Lord's, let them do with it what they want, then do that. Maybe your few recreational dollars left are best used if you and your spouse take a few moments and enjoy dinner out and talk and connect. But maybe the Lord would direct not a steak dinner out and instead a pot roast and a family invited over for you to to minister to them. You see, there's all kinds of kingdom use available to you but are you even asking God, what should I do with this $48 I have left in the budget for fun money? That's where the rubber can really meet the road in a way that's exciting because now you can teach your kids, what are you going to do with that $10 you got in birthday money from grandma? Okay, you want to do that? That's great. Is there anything you could do for someone else to show the love of Christ? And you just start showing them that every George Washington dollar bill can actually lay up treasure in heaven. And forfeiting a quick trip drink could be an act of spiritual discipline because you have a purpose in mind. God showed you what he wants you to do. Other times, guzzle that 300 calories, if you will. And enjoy it in moderation, I suppose. But just realize the freedom that's here. There's just no way I could apply this in every right way on how you spend your money. Because sometimes it's going to look like, whoa, they're really living it up. Well, do so to the glory of God. Other times it's going to like, wow, they're really sacrificing. That's only great if it's to the glory of God. The principle is that of stewardship. It all belongs to God. We are stewards. We manage God's resources. And if he's entrusted us with stuff, then let's account for it. Reckon with it and be good stewards of it. Principle number three is the principle of investment. Here I suggest to you that giving from the heart is never a financial loss. It's a gain. Now, I know we're, we're mixing terms here of loss and gain, but we, we need not think financial gain when it's compared to spiritual and even heavenly, or, or financial loss when we're comparing it to spiritual or heavenly gain. In a sense, any giving that you do from the heart 
for God and his work is not an asset. It's a, or, or, that's an asset. It's not a liability. We shouldn't count this in our budget as an expense. Giving should be income because I can't lose in giving if God tells me to give. This is where faith comes in. This is why, as we read from Malachi together earlier, God says, bring the offerings in. Test me. See if I'm trustworthy. See if you really can give up something that you think you have to have to make ends meet. But instead, you'll say, if God wants me to give it, I'll give it, and I'll trust him. Quit trying to make the ends meet. If it's faithless, and instead, watch God pull those ends together and stretch them and tie that knot. He'll make them meet. And so he says, see if I won't open the windows of heaven. Pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Luke 6, give and it will be given to you. Acts 20, we heard that familiar expression, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says that's from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself, though we know from studying scripture, we don't see that in the gospels. They must have heard him preach that message on giving, reminding the people that giving is always a gain. It's not a loss because it's more blessed to give than to receive. What does this mean? It means that God dangles an incentive in front of you and says, you want the real blessing? Give. You see, God's not opposed to a motivation of reward, of crown, of blessing. And here he's, he's trying to help us see, listen, my child, if you could taste the joy in giving that actually images God so loving the world that he gave Jesus, if you could taste the joy in giving you'd find therein lies the blessing. It's more blessed to give than to receive. In the Sunday school hour, uh, Zachary jumped on my text that I'm about to share, Philippians 4, and reminded us of Paul's contentment there. He knows how to abound and how to be abased, how to have a lot and how to have a little. But he's learned in whatever state he was in to be content. He then goes on to praise the church, for sending a gift to him in his time of need. And he says, no other church did that, but you guys did. And you met the need that I had. But it's interesting the way he sets up this whole discussion of finances there in Philippians 4. He begins by speaking of his joy. Verse 10 of Philippians 4, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And then he unfolds, because I had this need, and you were the ones that met it, and, and that was good, and yet I'm content no matter what. And we're still trying to get to the full explanation of why is he rejoicing. If he's making it clear, it's not just in the fact that I received a gift and my need was met. That's not the, the focus of his joy. So what is it? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and he says then in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. We all understand he was glad the need was met, but he says that, that's not where I'm so excited. That's not my greatest joy because I can have and I can have not. I'm okay with either. In this case, I have. So thank you. You're the only ones that did it. 
But here's why I'm rejoicing, because you have just profited. You just made a good investment. That's our principle, the principle of investment, right? We see that when we give, it looks like an outflow. It looks like an expense. It looks like a loss. And Jesus and now Paul are saying, no, don't look at it that way. The gift given to Paul, where they lost some financial amount, they gave it, was credited to their account, he says, as profit. It's just this reminder that we don't outgive God in any way. We don't repay God. We're never going to suffer when we choose to obey him, even in this realm of giving. Invest. Rejoice in the giving, not just the receiving. Oh, there's joy in that. God provides. He meets needs. We're thankful to the person. We write thank you notes. We, we try to express our thanks. That's all good. But remember, as much as, as you love receiving, you could also love giving and more so. Principle number four is the principle of willingness. And here I just highlight, even from the Old Testament language, all of the references to their hearts. When God first called for the contribution, he said, every man whose heart moves him. Then in chapter 35, he says, take a contribution, whoever is of a generous heart. And as Moses unfolds that to the people, he says this, or the text says this, then all the congregation of the people departed from the presence of Moses and they came Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. It begins to list what they brought and how much they brought. And again, verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun that goat's hair. All this emphasis on the heart. You see, we thought the Old Testament was all this law stuff and the New Testament was all the grace. No, we're seeing God was after the heart of his people then, and he is now. And so we read from 2 Corinthians, God wants us to give willingly, not of compulsion, but as cheerful givers. Principle of gratitude, stewardship, investment, willingness, and finally, the principle of faith. When we willingly give, we taste that joy, when we give out a gratitude, it's that thanksgiving. But there's also this element of faith. Giving from the heart believes that God will provide what I need. So how did God provide? Well, let's wrap up our story and be done. Exodus 35, here's the summons to all to bring their gifts. Exodus 36 gives us the rest of the story. Verse 3, they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work of the Lord, that, that the, the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, 
let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. It's kind of an odd story, isn't it? Kind of defies every, every like, you know, giving thermometer that was on the front walls of churches, you know, and some secretary would total up the offerings and go out there Tuesday afternoon, color in a few more red lines, right? And it's filling up. Well, imagine that poor secretary when she starts scribbling on the wall and coloring on the floor and red everywhere, and the pastor's getting, listen, people, please stop giving. And then we get to the point where we have to restrain you. The offering plates are locked away and the box is taken away and people are guarding the offering envelopes. No, no, you're not, you will not give to this church. <laughs> That's how it's unfolding. It's, it's nearly comical that a command goes out. Stop. Really, we have enough. How is it that slaves could give enough and more? The reality is because faith says God will provide what we need. If, if he wants it and needs it in his purpose, he'll provide it. It's just up to us to examine ourselves and say, oh, is that what he was looking for? I have that. I have time. I have money. I have some muscle I could use in tearing out a building. I, have, I know how to bake a meal and give it to someone. I can do that. I have the gift of hospitality. I can try to be discerning and weigh in on how to shape this kind of ministry or this outreach event. I can do that. And it's just that sudden awareness that God's not asking us to invent something or manufacture something. He's saying it's all there. Will you surrender it? Will you give it? It's a principle of faith. And so, as we think of giving to the church especially in the month of November when we ask you to consider even not just regular giving, that, that's kind of happening, but that sacrificial, that extra giving for this project and this purpose that we've laid out and we'll continue to lay out for you. I don't want you to be thinking, well, you know, I, I don't have very much. I might be able to come up with a few hundred dollars extra in the course of the year, but, you know, what's that going to do for a big expensive project? Well, Jesus was teaching a huge crowd one time. And they were there so long that they're all getting kind of hungry. And Jesus said, well, let's feed them. Well, you've had bosses that said, hey, I got an idea. Let's do this. And all the workers immediately scurry. Like, does he know what he's asking for? The disciples do that. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter's Simon Peter's brother, says to Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Ooh, but what are they among so many? Silly Andrew. How embarrassing to recommend five loaves and two fish for thousands of people. He realized he had played the fool, right? Here's the, well, the, he has this. Oh, oh, but what is, sorry, my bad. Obviously, that's not going to do anything for this crowd. And Jesus says, oh, let, let me have that. And he just starts dividing it up, and you know the story. Somehow he keeps dividing it up, and 
feeds the multitude, and then they gather up all the extras. See, when we give in faith, it's not the amount. It's who we're giving it to. And so don't worry about your offering if you think, well, I don't know if this is enough. The only one you have to say that to is the Holy Spirit. The rest of us, we're assuming it's five loaves and two fish. That might be the best gift of the whole day. So let's be moved by faith in these coming weeks. Whether we consider committing our money or our membership or our prayers or the other things we'll consider in the coming weeks, we give them in faith. May the Lord bless us as cheerful givers. On the regular, on the norm, we just give proportionally as God has prospered us. And then at times we give sacrificially as God leads us. Ask God what he wants from you. It's really that simple. I don't have the answer how much you should give. I don't want to have the answer. I have my own battles with how much to give, thinking, well, I'd really like to do this and this on the house and really do this or that. And sometimes it's not always cheerful to think, okay. But by faith, we say, wait a minute. What are we doing here? That's the heart that God wants. The heart that says, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. You can have what you want. So, Heavenly Father, hear that prayer from this year, people. You can have what you want. Be it our time, our abilities, our money, our careers, our our plan for where we think we're heading in life, our marriages, our singleness, our children, our, our days or years that you give us here on earth. Take what you like. It's yours. And with a fresh glimpse of your mercy as we've seen in the partaking of the elements of the bread and the cup that picture the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Based on that mercy, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And certainly, certainly this is our reasonable service. So receive everything we give from our grateful and willing hearts as an expression of our worship and thanksgiving for Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go.